Galatians uh, chapter 6, please, is where we need to look this morning, Galatians chapter 6. And just the one verse, verse 9, Paul writes, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let us not grow weary while doing good or in well-doing, as the old King James Version says. Be not weary in well-doing. Is Paul's admonition really absolutely necessary here? I mean, after all, what could be more nobler an occupation than well-doing? What could be more blessed? more satisfying, more beneficial to both yourself and to others than well-doing? What could enhance the kingdom of God more than believers in their well-doing? Surely it is so positive, it's so good, it's so right, it's so Christ-like. I mean, how could we ever tire of doing good? And yet the fact is we do tire of it. And Paul has to remind us and encourage us not to be weary in doing good. Interesting, the world never seems to tire of doing bad. Sure it doesn't. Never seems to tire of it. Crime is a 24-hour-a-day activity. Cults are on the doorstep year in, year out. Terrorism is unceasing. Drug pushers never seem to stop day or night. So why do we then get weary in well-doing? In our daily living, in our doing, in our being for the kingdom, sometimes we get weary and we get tired. Paul writes to the Galatians here in chapter 5 verse 7, he says, You did run well. Who did hinder you? What stopped you from running so well? So what are the signs of weariness? What can we look for uh, to tell us that we're growing weary? First of all, when our duties become a drudge. Whenever we begin to put forth, forth the very minimum effort, just enough to get by, or just enough to bluff everybody else, or just enough to bluff ourselves, that we're doing really well. In our heart of hearts, we know we're not really doing well. In fact, we're just doing enough just to get by on. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, the man who is not hungry says the coconut has a hard shell. When we become spiritually dry, and our interest in spiritual things begin to wane, well, how do you know that? Well, let me give you some clues. When you spend more time watching television and reading and hobbies and other stuff instead of spending more time thinking of eternal things and thinking about the kingdom of God. That's one of the signs that you have grown weary spiritually. Whenever church becomes simply a duty rather than a delight. 
Now, I know that there are moments and there's times, but I'm talking over a, a period when you begin to wane and church doesn't really matter that much, really. You fit it in when you can and if you can. Then you know that you're beginning to run on empty spiritually when these things are happening. When prayer and devotions, Bible reading, all of these things, when they all begin to dip and they all begin to wane, you'll know that you are weary. Elijah grew weary. And he grew weary after his greatest victory, didn't he? Very quickly, actually. Mount Carmel, he was calling fire down from heaven. He was killing the prophets of Baal with the sword. It was his greatest spiritual moment. It was the apex of his spiritual life. And within a very short period of time just after that, he was running for his life and he was hiding in a desert and he was sitting under a tree praying that God would take his very life. He had enough. He just had grown weary. John the Baptist grew weary too, didn't he? The crowds had melted away. The crowds were following Jesus and there was nothing wrong with that. In fact, he was pointing them to him to follow him. But when the crowds drifted away and he got put into jail, and in that dark hour of his life, he got very, very weary. And he sent a delegation to Jesus. Are you the one that was to come or do we look for another? You can almost sense his weariness and his tiredness with the whole thing. And just, ah. Do you ever feel like that? Ah. That's the way he felt. After that wonderful ministry and after that great period of impacting so many lives and preaching the gospel of repentance and people coming to him and getting baptized in the Jordan and then suddenly, after all of that is over, he gets weary and he gets tired. What are the causes of weariness? Well, let me give you one or two things to look out for. Trying to finish in the flesh, that which started out in the spirit. Trying to finish in the flesh that which started out in the spirit. Moses, the great servant of God. You remember how God used him mightily? How his spirit was with him? And how that for a long time he was leading that great congregation of two million people. Now that's a mega church, isn't it? Two million. The trouble was, all of them were yapping and gurning, as we would say. All of them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a church of two million people and all of them are on your back continually? I mean, that's enough to worry any man, isn't it? And he did ever so well for so long. And they complained that there was no water. And he went to God and he says, God, they're about to stone me because they're complaining there's no water here in the wilderness. And God says, don't worry about it. Take your rod and go out and strike the rock. And the water began to flow. Enough for two million people. It was a mighty miracle. But then later on, 
Another time they run out of water. And again, they come to Moses to Aaron, and they're complaining. You brought us here to die in the wilderness. What did you do that would have been better off in Egypt? And this time, he's weary, and he's tired. He's heard this so many times. All the yapping going on, it just got to him. And God says, go and speak to the rock. Take your rod with you, but speak to the rock. And he went. And in his weariness and his tiredness, instead of operating in the spirit, he now gets into the flesh. And he gets so angry. Instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it twice. And he says, must we fetch water out of this rock for you? You're a stiff-necked bunch. And he was mad at them. And unfortunately, that cost him dearly. Cost him dearly. He started out in the spirit, but at that moment he was ending up in the flesh. Paul says in Galatians 3.3, Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? You did run well. Who did hinder you? Started out great, but look, you're in the flesh now. How many times has that happened to us? Listen, you could, be, you, could come, you could come into this church in the Spirit and walk out that door in the flesh. You could be standing here raising your hands, praising the Lord, praying, seeking God, feeling wonderful, everything's great, and something can happen in the service. Somebody says something to you and you walk out that door in the flesh and everything you received is gone because you ended up in the flesh instead of the Spirit. It can happen so easily. 1 Samuel chapter 25, there's a story there of King David. He wasn't a king at this particular time, but he was king in waiting. Saul, God had taken the kingship off him and given it to David, but Saul didn't let go of it that easily. And for a number of years, Saul threatened to kill him and tried to kill him. And David's on the run. He's got an army of some 600 men. He's gathered around him with their families fighting men, some great warriors among them. And they're lodged in a particular place where, where there was a very rich, wealthy man called Nabal. Uh, and Nabal had 3,000 sheep as well as other uh, cattle and goods. And his sheep and his shears was in this particular area where David and his men were. And because David and his warriors were there, uh, he, they, David's men protected the sheep shears, made sure no bandits would come, and they made no demands on them, and they took nothing off them and demanded nothing from them, and they made it easy for them. And then there came a feast time, and David sent uh, ten of his young men to go to Nabal and to tell him and say, your, your son David, he was very deferential, your son David uh, has got a request uh, we have looked after your sheep shears and we made sure no harm would come to them and we made no demands of them. But now we would, we would love you to give us some food uh, and some uh, victuals because we want to make a feast unto the Lord. And, and we're, we're, so we're asking, could you help us? And it was a very reasonable request. And Nabal was an evil, wicked man. A terrible man, a brutish man. Sons of Belial, he was called. And he, and he says, well, who is David. Who is the son of Jesse? Of course he knew who rightly was because he knew he was Jesse's son. But he's putting him down. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Well, there's many servants these days who leave their masters having to dig at him about King Saul and all the rest of it. And he, he chased them. Get rid of them. Give them nothing. 
And they went back and they told King David. And says, this is what Nabal said. This is what he did. And David got so angry. He was so angry and livid. Here, here's, here's what he did. He said to 400 of his men, saddle up. We're going to go to Nabal. And before this day is out, there will not be one male member of his family left. I'm going to slaughter the lot of them. Sounds like the flesh, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you ever want to throttle somebody? <laughs> that sounds like the flesh rising up, doesn't it? Here's the man, listen to me. Here's the man who, when he was a lad in the spirit, took on Goliath that a whole army was frightened of. And all he had was a slingshot and five little pebbles. But he was in the spirit. And he had a cause. And his cause was God and God's kingdom. But here he is now, and his only cause is himself. This hurt his ego. He was embarrassed in front of his men. How dare that rascal do this to me? Does he not know who really I am? And suddenly he's in the flesh. Thank God that Nabal, brute of a man he was, had got a beautiful, lovely wife, Abigail. And Abigail heard from Nabal's servants what had happened. And she says his name, he's, he's just like name, like nature. He was, Nabal means foolish or a folly or a fool. He says that's exactly what he's like, just a scoundrel. And so she got some food and some donkeys and all the rest of it and took them to David and met David on the way. And she pleaded with David. It's a beautiful story. She pleaded with him and said, listen, you're going to be king over all Israel. Don't stain your reputation on that scoundrel of a husband of mine. He's a rascal. He's not worth it. Just forget about him. Look, I'll give you this for your men. And you can have your feast. But just don't, don't stain your reputation. It's not worth it, David. And you know, that changed David's mind. And he didn't do it. He wanted to vindicate himself. He wanted to take vengeance on himself. And he didn't do it. And he turned back. And God took vengeance on Nabal for him. And eventually he married Abigail, took her to be his wife. It's a tremendous story, but it shows you how the story, how that somebody who can begin in the spirit can end up in the flesh. And it wearies you when you do that. And so trying to finish in the flesh what started out in the spirit are genuine feelings of inadequacy. Feeling inadequate. Feeling just not up to the job. Remember Gideon threshing out the barley and the wine press, frightened of the Midians? Or, yeah. You remember how he was doing that undercover, as it were, and how the Lord came to him, the angel of the Lord, and spoke to him, tried to encourage him, and told him he was a mighty man of valor. And he says, well, me? He says, I'm least in my father's house. Do you, do you not know my history? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know who my family is in Israel? Me? Genuinely felt inadequate. Do you ever feel inadequate? Moses felt inadequate. 
After 40 years of looking after his father-in-law's sheep in the backside of the desert, he certainly felt inadequate when God came to him in the burning bush and commissioned him. He said, I want you to go back to Pharaoh. I want you to go to your people. I want you to lead them out. Well, 40 years prior to that, he thought he was, believed he was the deliverer. <clears throat> Tried to deliver his people. Made a mess of it. But he's not thinking that anymore. And he starts to make excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. I can't speak. Who am I? What am I going to say? Who am I going to say to me? Who's going to believe me? Excuse after excuse after excuse. Why? Because he felt inadequate. And often we're like that too. We feel just inadequate. King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 9, whenever Samuel came to anoint him to be king, you know what he did? He ran and he hid himself among the stuff, it says. He hid himself. He felt so inadequate. And yet he was head and shoulders above everybody in Israel. But inside he felt so inadequate. I can't do this. And he ran, literally ran and hid himself. But you can't hide from God. Sure you can't. And of course he came. And then he got anointed. And then later on, of course, because of his way he lived and because of the things that he did, God had enough of him being king over Israel and says, I'm, I'm lifting my kingship off him. I'm going to give it to David. If you read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll see that Samuel came looking for him. God had told him through Samuel to slay the Amalekites and to kill King Agag of the Amalekites and slaughter all their animals. And don't leave anything behind. Kill them all. But you know what he did? He spared Agag. And his men kept the best of the sheep and the cattle. And so Samuel comes looking for him. And in effect, you can read it. Samuel says, well, did you do what God told you to do? Oh, yeah, yeah. He says, well, why am I hearing sheep bleeding? Why am I hearing that? Oh, well, the men, you know, the blame came again. The men. He says, where's Agag? Oh, well, we spared him. Well, you ought not to have done that. God said to kill him. And, and then Samuel said that God has removed the kinship from you. And here's what he said. He says, when you were little in your own eyes... When you were little in your own eyes, going back to that time he ran ahead, when you were little in your own eyes, you can read that. That was the best part of him. When he actually felt inadequate within himself. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Because then God gets the glory if he uses you. If you feel you can do everything without God, <laughs> God's not going to get any glory in your life. But if you genuinely feel, I'm inadequate, God says, that's all right. I'll give you the grace. I'll enhance your gift. I'll help you do what I want you to do. Then you'll trust me. Then you'll lean on me. So he says, when you were little in your own eyes, that was the time. That was the best time. And so it was. See, no matter how genuine your feelings of inadequacy may be, never let it be a cop-out for doing nothing. Because sometimes people go through their whole life thinking, I can do nothing, I have nothing, I have no talents, I have no gift, I have nothing. You go through your whole life like that and God can't use you. What you need to say, God, is I don't know what I've got, but whatever I have, 
that you can see in me. Take it and use it for your glory. And then you'll be amazed what God can do through you with your feelings of inadequacy. And you're feeling, God, I really need your help. Before I knock this door, before I witness to my loved one, before I do this, before I, whatever it may be, God, I really, really need your help to do this. And you'll find that God will be gracious and give you the ability to do it. So trying to finish in the flesh what started out in the spirit, genuine feelings of inadequacy or the opposition of the enemy. Paul says, Satan has hindered me. In other places he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. God reward him according to his works. You see, if you're well doing, if you're doing good in the kingdom, you get the attention of hell itself. If you're not doing anything, the devil doesn't need to bother with you. But when you're doing something, anything that's good that will enhance the kingdom of God some way that will count for eternity, you get the attention of hell. And the enemy doesn't like that. It threatens his kingdom. And this is why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 he talks about that thorn in the flesh that was given to him, lest he should be exalted above measure. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Second Corinthians chapter 11. If you just care to look at this for a second or two. The Apostle Paul here is, is writing to these Corinthian Christians. He'd been away from them for a little bit. And others has come in, uh, trying to take over, as it were, eloquent men, great orators, and, uh, and came with all great letters of recommendation, commendation. And here's the mighty Apostle Paul, and he's writing to this church and Actually, we haven't time to read this, but they were actually asking him for his letters. He says, you're my letter. He says, you're my epistle. <laughs> he says, I won you to Christ, and you're asking me for a letter of recommendation. So in order to show them his apostleship, verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. All right, so these people are just boasting about themselves and you're accepting their boasting about themselves. Okay, he says, well then accept my boasting. Even though it's foolish and I feel a fool for doing it, but he says, accept this. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were, foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. He's a bit sarcastic there, isn't he? For you put up with it, if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, to your shame I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever, but when whatever anyone else is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. 
from the Jews. Five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day I was in the deep. In journeys often in perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil. In sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, that which comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Boy, what a list that is, eh? If any man ever had a right to be weary, that was the Apostle Paul, isn't it? And yet, thank God even though he came through that, and even though he says, in weariness, in sleeplessness, in hungerings, and thirstings, in fastings often, and all of that, yet he ran his course, and he ran his race. And he says, thanks be unto God, who always causes us to triumph in Christ. Another thing that causes weariness is lack of appreciation. There's something in our human psyche that needs and looks for appreciation. And not to be appreciated, not to be have your deeds go unnoticed, unrecognized, unappreciated, or simply taken for granted, if that goes on too long, it can weary you. You say, well, I know what the obvious answer is to that. You do it unto the Lord. Yes, you do. That's true. But no matter how spiritual you are, there's going to be times you wish somebody just had a said, thanks. Thanks. That's all. Not much, is it? Or you did a good job. Or that was, that was a good thought. That was a good gift you gave. That was just something simple. And if you don't get that, you look for it, don't you? And the trouble is, if you look too much, <laughs> then it wearies you all the more, doesn't it? But it's nice when somebody just gives a wee pat in the back, isn't it? Just a wee bit of recognition. Not a, you don't need a lot that goes to your head, to your big swelled head, and you can't get out the door. But just a little bit, a wee pat in the back. I found this written in a book, and I wrote it down. In fact, it's on the cell group sheet. It's called Anyway. People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People favor underdogs, but follow only the top dogs. Fight for some underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you've got anyway. <laughs> That's good advice, isn't it? That keeps you going on. 
Because all of those things, or some of them, is going to happen to you sooner or later. And you've got to find a way to go on anyway. Amen. And sometimes the thing that worries us is just apparent lack of results. You keep doing and doing and doing, whatever that may be, and you don't see any results. There doesn't seem to be any fruit from what you're doing. Now, it's good to question that if there's no fruit because God wants fruit. In fact, He wants to bear much fruit. But there are certain periods, and there may be extended periods, when you're doing and doing and doing and you're seemingly getting no nothing back from it. Seemingly, there's no fruit coming out of it. Consider this for a moment. Jesus walked this earth for three and a half years. He got around him his disciples, those 12 in particular. Then there were 70 and more, but those 12 in particular. He did mighty miracles. He even raised the dead. He walked in water. He did outstanding, miraculous, supernatural things. And the disciples saw all of them. He spoke like no man ever spoke. He taught like no man ever taught. He was a brilliant communicator. He was wonderful at painting pictures with words. Even the common people heard him gladly. They could grasp what he was saying. And yet after three and a half years, leaving aside all the miracles and all the teaching and all of that, leaving all that aside, just those disciples that he was with every day, pumping into them his teachings, pumping into them the Word of God. And after three and a half years, what happens to them? They all forsook him and fled. Only John and a few women were left at the cross. And Peter even denied he ever knew the man. <laughs> didn't look as if it was very successful. Sure it didn't. Didn't look as if much came out of that. Kind of looked as if those three and a half years was wasted in those 12 men. Might as well not have bothered. At his greatest crisis in his life, they all ran and left him and denied him. I mean, it couldn't get any worse than that. Sure it could. And yet, and yet, Jesus saw beyond all of that and he saw the day of Pentecost that was coming. He told them to go and tarry in the upper room. And when the Holy Spirit fell and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, suddenly they were transformed. And Peter went out and preached and what a harvest of souls from that one single sermon. The church was launched with a blaze of glory. And suddenly, all of that three and a half years was worth it. It was all worth it. Didn't seem so for a while. And that's why sometimes you've got to keep on doing good. Doing good. Be not weary in well-doing. You've got to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it because there's a harvest coming. You've got to keep at it. 
But sometimes it's the apparent, that's why I said apparent, the apparent lack of results, if you're not careful, can weary you. Could get you down. Could make you think, this is a waste of time, why do I bother my head? <laughs> and many has said that and done that and just gave up and thought, I don't need this anymore. Who needs the hassle of this? And gave up when they might have hung on and saw a different result at the end of it. So it's amazing the results can be if we just hang in there. Sometimes you've got to look down the road and say, God, I'm doing this for your sake, for your kingdom, and Lord, you'll cause fruit to be born in it. So what's the cures for weariness? Fellowshipping with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, that lovely portion of Scripture that Jesus spoke. Verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. That sounds like weariness, doesn't it? And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, excuse me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fellowshipping with Jesus. Just setting some time aside every day to be in His presence. Not necessarily asking for anything or looking for anything, but just to be in His presence. Just to say, Lord, here I am. I'm sitting here or I'm lying here or I'm sitting alongside the road in my car and I'm just going to focus my thoughts on you and your mercy and your goodness and your love towards me. And that refreshes your spirit. That lifts the burden. And you'll find the weariness starting to lift if you come into his presence. And take his yoke upon us. Come to me. It's an invitation, isn't it? And how often do we miss that invitation and we don't go to him. And yet he invites us to come to me. So fellowshipping more with Jesus. Seeing our lives from God's perspective. If you only see your life from your own perspective, if you only see your life from this world's perspective, you're going to be weary and weary and weary. But if you see it from God's perspective, because God sees the big picture. God sees your future. God sees your eternity. We live in the here and now, don't we? We can't even see beyond the next minute we're living in, beyond our next breath, that God sees our whole life ahead and he sees all eternity ahead. That's his perspective. And we've got to keep that in mind. So when stuff happens, you say, God, you already knew this was going to happen. And Lord, you see my life from here on out and you see it through all eternity. That's your perspective. It's not mine, because I can't see that, but it's yours. And you look to God's perspective. And then you look to God's word and you get encouraged by that. You see, God has got an eternal future for you. <laughs> Apart from whatever time any of us left on this earth, he's got that plan. But beyond that, there's eternity of eternities. 
God sees the big picture in your life. Aren't you glad for that? And then claim God's promise of harvest. Claim his promise of harvest. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. There's the confirmation. We shall reap. You've got to believe that. You've got to claim God's promise of harvest. Particularly when you've sown and sown and sown and sown and it doesn't seem like there's any harvest coming. That's when you've got to claim God's promise of harvest. That's the confirmation. We shall reap. There's a consideration in due season. I'm glad that Paul put those words in there, in due season. Because that puts it into God's hands, doesn't it? Because we're not controlled over that due season. That's in God's hands. So we've got to keep on trusting and believing and walking and doing and trying not to get weary in that because there's a due season coming. Your due season may be tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. That door may open tomorrow. You don't know that. I don't know that, but God knows that. There used to be a famous old preacher. And every night, Andrew Bonner, every night, before he went to bed, he would go to his curtains, and he would pull his curtains and he'd say, Maybe tonight, Lord. He was waiting for the Lord's return. And then he'd get up every morning, he'd open his curtains and say, Maybe today, Lord. <laughs> and he did that for years and years without fail. And one day he did do it. And the Lord didn't come to him, but he went to the Lord. <laughs> but there's the condition. If we faint not, if we do not lose heart. And weariness is designed to make you lose heart. And if you lose heart and you faint, then you don't reap the harvest. And so life and the devil and our own flesh that we're constantly in battle with would want us to be weary so that we lose heart. And many a dear saint of God has lost heart and has given up. Well, they might have succeeded with another blow, but they lost heart. So Paul here who has gone through more than any of us that ever go through in 20 lifetimes. He says, don't grow weary in well-doing. You will reap in due season if you do not lose heart. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep holding on. Keep sowing. You're going to reap. Keep believing there's a harvest coming. And when you do that, one day, that will come to fruition. And one day you'll get the results. And one day you'll get your harvest. And one day you'll get that blessing that your heart's desired. But you've got to keep believing. Amen? Let's pray.